Hebrews chapter 8. We are now in part 4 of our study in Hebrews, leaving religion. We're looking tonight at Jesus, our hero, part 2. So leaving religion is a call to adventure. As humans, we labor to erect sturdy, safe cathedrals to protect our lives. We want easy, affordable religion. Something that doesn't demand too much of us. When Rome's Emperor Nero, in the mid-60s, turned against Christians, Jewish believers found an easy solution in Judaism. As a religion recognized by Rome, joining the synagogue would have offered safety. But worship, vocation, and God cannot be squeezed into our safe cathedrals. So Hebrews, our book we're studying, calls those believers and us into an adventure, something costly, but transformative. To journey the long, difficult road of faith, engaging Jesus' life means departing from religion's cathedral. And that's where we are. The Jewish believers of the time that were in the church, possibly those that are in Rome, have been undergoing some heavy heat from the emperor. Christianity is no longer acceptable as a Roman religion. In other words, to be a Christian is to be against the empire itself and Caesar. So it's, an, it's, it's illegal. It would be, in many ways, what it would be to be a terrorist in America. It's illegal. They are enemies of the state, according to the emperor. So the Christians taking the heat on could have been closet Christians, especially the Jewish ones, by hiding out in the synagogue and saying, all right, we got Jesus, we got our safety in the synagogue, we're good to go. But this author here in Hebrews is calling them not to make that mistake, that Jesus is actually providing them right there with a call to adventure. This isn't something you would get up and say, ooh, I want to go suffer. Ooh, I want to go through hardship. Or, ooh, I want to go on an adventure and stretch myself. Usually we don't roll out of bed doing that. We roll out of bed saying, all right, routine, comfort, everything that's controllable. I want everything to be where it should be. That's what we call the cathedral. And in a religious sense, we love the cathedral because we know what to expect. It's predictable. It's safe. It's safe. And we get uh, Bible teachings that sort of pat us on the back and say, you've been good all along. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, this is a call to adventure. It's time to grow. It's time to step out into the unknown. Don't deny Jesus by going to the synagogue where they'll ask you, are you enemies of the state? Are you with us? Go for the adventure. Don't worry about what's going to come. And as an example, in the heart of the letter to the Hebrews, which is a written sermon, we find Jesus as the example for the Hebrews to follow on their adventure. He went on an adventure, so you can too. And you can follow in his footsteps because he went on ahead of you and he'll show you how to do it. So at the heart of Hebrews in the center, we get our attention turned towards Jesus. And he is exalted as our hero, the one who went into the adventure and came out unscathed. Well, scathed, but in <laughs> he's back, <laughs> and that's where we're going. And so we're in the middle of Hebrews, and it's where it's showing him as our hero. Now, there are false heroes in the world, 
And our society is full of false heroes. I believe it's tonight is the Oscars. And we've got all sorts of heroes. A lot of teenage girls have certain heroes that get the actor of the year award. And other uh, people swoon over the, you know, the actress of the year and your best picture and your director and all these things. And our society looks at hero as something that is equivalent to fame. Something that has superpowers or somebody who is able to be fantastic by himself and for himself. But a true hero in its traditional sense, in its non-celebrity, non-fame exalting status, a true hero is someone who goes through three movements in life. And this is a recap of last week. First, a true hero is someone who leaves his home or something that is comfortable or known to him. He leaves something and steps into the unknown. That's when you engage in adventure. He leaves. Second, a true hero becomes a hero on that adventure because he goes the distance. Despite the trials, the temptations, the struggles, he's able to go all the way to the end of his adventure and see it to the end. That is a hero. He goes the distance. So yes, he leaves something. He goes the distance. And third, the hero doesn't just get to his destination and say, ah, I made it. I'm cool. I'm going to sit here. The hero makes the return back home. And there he becomes a leader or a mentor or a helper to those that he's returning to because of the experience and strength he gained on his adventure. That is a hero. He leaves, he goes the distance, and he returns to help others. And that is what Jesus has done. Hebrews shows us is that he left heaven and he came to earth and took on human flesh and he lived among us. He made the great departure. He plunged into a big adventure and then he goes the distance and he struggles with us humans. He's tempted in the wilderness and he feels pain and he feels sorrow and he knows every human experience and he doesn't just become like a human, but he becomes a human and shares our experiences yet he does so without sin he continues to go further and further even to the point of death on the cross and when he's tempted to there in the garden of gethsemane flee the cross he says no i'm going to see this to the end and i'm going to go to the cross and he did indeed go the distance then he returned He didn't die and stay dead. He rose from the dead. He comes out of the tomb and then he ascends, the Bible tells us, to the right hand of the Father, where Hebrews explains he is our high priest making intercession for us and leading us into the very presence of God himself. He has returned to help us, his followers, along our own adventure. And so by every sense, those three points of a true hero, Jesus meets those and Hebrews shows us that. And so he is exalted at this part of the sermon as our hero, our leader, someone who when our adventure gets tough and we don't know if we want to go the distance, we don't even know if we want to join the adventure. We look at him. He continually says, look at Jesus, follow him and consider that he's helping us along the way. He's here to guide us and to meet our needs. So we read in chapter 4, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if you will go ahead to chapter 10, verse 19, this is where we're going to finish tonight. I want you to see something. 1019. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. We just read that word in chapter four, right? Confidence. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the household of God, let us draw near with a heart a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us verse 23 hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. So I read that to you because you need to see that chapter 10 verse 19 in those few verses mimic chapter four verses 14 through 16. Chapter 4, verse 14, introduced us to our hero and then showed us how he's our hero. Chapter 10, verse 19, is now bringing us back to the same thing chapter 4 said. Chapter 4 called us to draw near and to hold fast with confidence. Chapter 10, verse 19, and the verses after do the same thing. They say, draw near and hold fast to your confession with confidence. Those are the same um, exhortations given to us at the beginning and at the end here of this middle section of Hebrews where Jesus is exalted in the center as our hero. So we have what is technically called an inclusion or if you like bookends better, that's what we have are two bookends draw near and hold fast to your confession because Jesus is our high priest. And then in the middle, this is what he looks like. And this is why we should draw near and hold fast. He is our hero. So this is why we're in part two of Jesus, our hero. So let's go ahead. Chapter eight, verse one. Now the point and what we are saying is this. After seven whole chapters, he gets to his point. (laughs) We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places In the true tent, note that word, or true tabernacle, that the Lord set up, not man. Here's the whole point. Jesus is our high priest. There were earthly priests in Israel who led them to God and in the worship of God at the earthly tabernacle. But this high priest has a far superior ministry than those priests did. While they ministered on an earthly tabernacle, it says that Jesus is a high priest in the true tabernacle, in the heavenly places, it said. That's where this high priest is serving on our behalf before God. So while those priests were on earth, this priest is in heaven. While those priests were on that tabernacle, Jesus is in the quote, true tabernacle, it says. The true tabernacle. Hmm. Interesting wording. Well, we look down at verse five. They serve, and this is talking about the priests and the tabernacle, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. 
So this tabernacle and its priests and their sacrifices and their worship services, these again, verse five, served as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So here we're presented with this very strange picture at the very beginning where we've had this idea that Israel had their religion and they had their worship of God in the tabernacle and their priests. And all of a sudden we're told that wasn't real. Those were copies and shadows of something that was real. In heaven, there is a true tabernacle. In heaven, there's a true priest. In heaven, there's true worship. And that has always existed before Israel built their tent and Moses had worship services there. This has always been and has always been real and has always God has always been present there. And when he had Moses build Israel a tabernacle for their worship of God, this was supposed to simply be a copy of what had already existed forever in heaven. So that the religion of Israel was really just kind of an imitation. And as I I came upon this verse this week, I couldn't help but think of the Wizard of Oz. The great and terrible wizard of Oz, how Dorothy and the tin man and the, the, the straw man and the lion come and they're all intimidated by this great and terrible wizard. But at one point, Toto, the little dog, is able to trip the screen over and there behind the screen or behind this curtain, if you will, uh, is not a great and terrible wizard, but a wee little old man who calls himself a humbug. And what was once so extravagant to them, they realized this was all an imitation. This wasn't the real deal. And in some ways, what our author here is saying is, look, what was going on there was really just an imitation. It was just almost pretend for what was really happening in heaven where God is. And Jesus now is serving for us there. Interesting to learn that religion is not our reality. And listen, we need to understand this right now, that every religion on this earth is an imitation. It's an, it's an attempt to mimic the true reality. And some people have got it more right than others. You would think by observing the different religions, but every religion has been an attempt to mimic a deeper and truer and grander reality that has existed before the religion. It is simply man trying their best to mimic what God is always and already has going. And even Israel and their religion, though it was given by God, it too was simply an imitation of something truer and real, more real. There was something more that meets the eye that was going on there. And I wonder if in so many churches in America, if we're buying into the way we do church, quote unquote, or our certain liturgies or systems of worship or belief systems, we kind of, we have so much fun making our cathedrals out of these. I wonder how many of us in America aren't simply pretending that our quote religion is reality. And we've never gone deep enough, far enough to find the true reality where God's presence is reigning and ruling. Well, this is how he sets up our passage. So, woo, yay, let's go forward. That religion is never reality. It's mimicking a deeper and truer reality. So, verse 6, we find out 
that Jesus has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, so what we are now being introduced to is the concept of covenant. Now, covenant was, the first covenant was really just the whole system. The tabernacle, Moses, the priests, the way they approached God, God's promises to be with the people there. That was the first covenant. It was God reaching into human history and saying, I want a relationship with you. I want to show myself to you. And as a response, I want you to be responsible for what I've shown you and to take this to the world. That was the first covenant. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to introduce a new covenant. In other words, there was that system, that quote religion, uh, but now there's going to be a new one. Okay, so the author is now going to introduce, introduce us to a newer and better one. So what he does in verse eight is he quotes Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. The lengthiest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. Quoted at large. You know, usually when you see Old Testament quotes, it's like one or two lines. And they're like, okay, go read up on the rest if you want more. He actually just quotes the whole stinking thing. And so here we see in verse 8 that what this covenant is, is Jeremiah's um, recapping. Uh, he says, look, read verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. See, they broke that covenant. So he called them, he made a covenant for them, but they were miserably rebellious, teenager stage of their life. And that's when Jeremiah is writing. Jeremiah was saying this while Israel was sitting scattered throughout the world and most of them living in Babylon. So their whole uh, tabernacle and their religious system has been broken. The temple had been burnt down. Israel is all over the place. And he's saying, look, the days are coming when God's going to just start over and give us a new covenant. That means he's going to fix us and he will re-engage us with a new relationship, a new kind of relationship. So you read on and in verse 11, uh, we see what it's going to look like. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. And if you look up at verse 10 in the middle, it says also, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's why you aren't going to have to teach everyone know the Lord. Because when this covenant comes, I'm going to write this covenant on their hearts themselves. So, verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, back to the speaker in Hebrews, he makes the first one obsolete. And right? If a new one's coming, then the first one's obviously a dud. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And ironically, only a few years after this was penned, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. So that first covenant indeed grew old and vanished away. Now, this is what we do. So religion is not real. It doesn't really, it's just a mirror of what is reality, but it itself is not reality. 
Um, what we're going to see now is this is why our Jesus comes in as our hero, as our high priest. He, he enters into our religious worship and practices and says, okay, that was a good first step. But look, I'm going to take you now into the true thing that's going on. You, you loved and adored all this thing that's reflecting what's going on. I'm going to take you through that and past that into the true, deep, eternal reality of God. God himself. So. I'm going to show you something on the screen here. And what you'll notice is that this big red circle, that's the world. That's where we are all born in. We all live in it. We all have our normal dealings in the world. Um, The New Testament tells us, Paul specifically tells us often, you were born in this dead as a rebel against God, kind of doing whatever you want shoving your fist up at God and just, I'm going to live my life. That's the world. Everybody's in the world. But then we were introduced to an idea of religion. And so we created this border for ourselves within the world. We, whether, um, usually for all of us in here, I'm sure it was Christianity. Somebody led you to Jesus. Maybe it was a harvest crusade. Maybe you just kind of went to church. Maybe your parents raised you as a Christian. Whatever it was, you entered the blue, the blue circle here, your religion. And you entered into that, and you developed these nice uh, boundaries, these safety boundaries, where you said, okay, this is where godliness is, and outside of this, the red, that's bad. That's sin. That's rebellion. And over here in the blue, we're doing God's work. We're doing good stuff. And it's true. And we go out sometimes, we cross the border, and we bring people in, and we say, yay, you're now living the right way, God's way. And so we've established a new zone within the world, religion. That, though, this blue circle is what Hebrews has been telling us is not reality. It's all pretend. It's all play. We're doing these things and they're helping us because, look, we were so lost and dead in the world that we needed something to show us that the world wasn't the right way. We had to have some sort of a gateway forward. So religion and all of its rules and all of its structures and the things you were told to do and not to do, those were necessary to awaken the soul and to train the mind that the world is not all there is there is something more but the problem is too many people live in the blue sphere all their lives and they never press on to what hebrews has been calling us to this whole time to the green zone the very holy of holies itself the very center of god's presence or if you want to go as far as this and say heaven itself Hebrews is trying to call these readers or hearers out of the blue and into the green. And he sees Rome's persecution as that adventure that will take them there. But some of them are willing to instead uh, hide in a different blue and call it Judaism. We're safe here. We're safe with the pretend and the play and the things that are fading away. And we don't want to press in to know Jesus, our hero, intimately, personally, relationally. So when we looked, when we learned about the first covenant, um, this is was talking about the blue. Israel was given a tabernacle, a method of meeting with God. You've got priests and then you got sacrifices and the sacrifices are brought to the priests. The priests offer them. And then you are drawing close to God. That was the first covenant. But this new covenant takes us past the blue and all the way into the green. 
Okay? So we're going to elaborate this a little more in chapter 9. I, I gave you a visual so that you can see what chapter 9 is about to show us. That Jesus was the one who took us beyond the curtain of religion and into the deep reality of God himself. So, chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Okay, so what he's going to do is he's going to talk about that first tent, that first tabernacle where Israel worshiped God, okay? There are two sections within this tent. The first section is the holy place. That's what he's going to describe. So for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Now there is a second section of the tent, verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies, or this was the throne of God itself. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn. And then he describes some of the things that were there, uh, Aaron's staff and the original Ten Commandments. And above it, verse five, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. All of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So that's something he could go on and on about. But you guys need to see the picture. In Israel's tabernacle, you had the first section of the tent where the priests came in regularly. And they were doing their duties and offering praises to God. Then there was that one section deep in the tent where it was separated by a curtain where there was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was supposed to be the throne of God. Now, Egypt... Egypt's religions had arcs similar to this, and they had places where they would erect their statues with cherubim on either side of the statue. But the difference with Israel's um, ark here is that while Egypt put the image of their god, the statue, between the cherubim, so that it was literally sitting on its throne, flanked by angels, Israel's ark had nothing between the cherubim. Emptiness, space, because God could not be limited to a statue or a piece of stone or something carved and, and designed. God was much bigger than that. He couldn't be f- cramped into an image. So Israel saw something deeper about their God already. That yes, we've given him an earthly space, but he is too big for this earthly space alone. So these are the two sections. This the second section. The high priest could only come in, only the high priest, only once a year. But the first section, the priest could come in all the time. Why not the second section? Because that was where God himself was. And the humans could not go in without proper representation. So that's what he's setting up here. So now you see in verse 6, these preparations having been thus made the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people that's called the day of atonement that's what pastor mike read for us at the beginning of worship the scripture reading from leviticus chapter 16 Now, in verse 8, this gets very, this is where this will blow your mind. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates 
that the way into the holy places, the holy of holies, that second tent, the way there is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. What? (laughs) Right? Did you just have that moment? (laughs) This is where he just blows your mind. Okay, so this is, if you look at the screen again, um, you got the red, the blue, the green. Let's erase some of what's going on there and think the temple now. You're looking at a model of the temple. The red being the outer courts. The blue being that for the tent itself. And that's the outer section where the priests can come and go in and out. But the green being the Holy of Holies where they could go only go in once a year. Only the high priest and that with blood. So that's the temple with its three zone structure. It's levels of holiness. What he just said is that the way into the Holy of Holies is not open to us because the first section, the blue section, the place where the priest can go in and out, because that still stands. That's what he's saying. We cannot just run into the Holy of Holies as long as that first part of the tent still stands. And then he puts in parentheses, in the ESV, it puts it in parentheses to help you know he's clarifying. He says, which is symbolic for the present age. Whoa, okay, hold on now just a second. So, um... The present age was the first covenant. That was the first covenant God made with Israel and the tabernacle itself and all the worship that was going on there. That becomes that blue circle, if you will. And in order to get us into the holy place, this had to be done away with. And it's the new covenant that he made in Jesus and in his followers that now can go into the holy of holies. So in a sense, in a sense, what we have going on here is, yes, you have the tabernacle with its two sections. The one all the priests can go into and then the one that only one priest can go into once a year. Well, now take that tabernacle itself and turn that into an image of covenants. The first covenant was like the outer part. The priest can come in and out all the time. And then the new covenants, the holy of holies, where only one person could go in once a year. The new covenant is that much more superior than the first covenant is the point. Now, what he's saying is, if the new covenant is indeed active, then Jesus is the one who ripped that veil and said, let's go in, people, come with me. And he, as he were going to read, brought his own blood to do so. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right now, he's still blowing our minds. (laughs) So, verse 9 continues on, and it explains that the first uh, covenant, which is the blue section, right? The first covenant, you see that only brings us to the, the blue section. It, it, the, so that first covenant brought Israel out of the world, out of Egypt and into a relationship with God. Many of us have been there. Well, many of us, if you're here tonight, you're probably either in blue all the way or you're straddling red and blue right now, but you are somewhere blue because you're here. Not that you're sad, but <laughs> so, um, so verse 11 So this is what, this is now where we read. Okay, so the way was closed, but now it's suddenly open. That curtain is now open. We don't have to stay in blue. We can go into green, into the holy place. Verse 11, but when Jesus Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. That was the first covenant, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, basically if burnt down creation could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, the creator himself, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In short, if, if burnt created animals could purify the Israelites, how much more can the creator's death purify us? Obviously a lot more powerful there. So verse 13, therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So Jesus is the one who took us into the green. So what we've seen is that religion is represented by Israel's tabernacle and the first covenant, but now the Holy of Holies is made accessible for all humans in and through Jesus, and that we no longer need that tabernacle. We no longer need those fake uh, shadows, those copies, those those replicas, we can go now into the real thing itself that all religion is always meant to mimic and try to attempt to, to reproduce. We can skip those things and go straight in to that eternal, true reality of God. Where eight verses one and two told us Jesus is there serving. We can go straight on through. That's what the new covenant is about. And that is also this call to adventure the Hebrews are being given is look, you guys have the opportunity now in this time and stage in your life to get out of your comfortable blue religion and into the green holy of holies. But crossing that line is a huge commitment. So, 23 Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. So the tabernacle in other words had to be purified. It was it was not even the real deal. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into heavenly places made with hands, not onto holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. But he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So if we're willing to follow him, Jesus will take us on an adventure that goes all the way past religion and into the very heart and reality and depths of God, as you see in the graphic. Okay, so now we see religion is not reality. It's a copy of reality. Jesus has been willing to take us beyond the veil of religion into reality. Now we see how he's done this. Chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Do you see how repetitive it is? Just getting it in your head. Like what Jesus has done is real. Religion is just a shadow. <laughs> He's really pounding it in your head. So since this has all happened, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So what we're going to see is the insufficiency of religion. Okay. Keep going. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? 
But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of the sins every year. Every time they offer a sacrifice, they're reminded, I'm a sinner, but God's forgiving me. All the time, sacrifices every day, sacrifices every year, never-ending sacrifices. Hence, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That doesn't mean that Israel was never forgiven, that God was faking it. Oh, you're forgiven. No, he really forgave them on the Day of Atonement when those offerings were made. He forgave them. The blood of bulls and goats did forgive them. But here's what you need to see his point is. Those bulls and goats could not forgive Israel eternally. They could only forgive them because they had to be repetitively offered. And the more that they're continually offered, they remain forgiven. But as soon as they stopped... Forgiveness stopped. So it was an ongoing thing and it showed its insufficiency that it had to keep being maintained. The way your car goes through gas, it's a completely insufficient thing. So now to prove that the sacrifices were never the best way to begin with, verse 5 quotes the Psalms and says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will as is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now the comment from our speaker in verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law, that thing that's a shadow of the reality. (laughs) Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. So his point is this. This is how he concludes it. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. In other words, he does away with the the religion. He does away with the sacrifices in order to establish the entrance into the Holy of Holies, the new covenant. And it is by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus came not... Jesus came in a body to live in obedience to the Father, and his sacrifice on the cross was good enough forever. And the sacrifices on a regular, amen, daily, weekly, monthly basis, they're no longer necessary because his stands forever. So that's what's going to be reiterated in 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, meaning it's done. I'm not getting up to offer another one. It's done. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's Psalm 110. We saw that last week being quoted a few times. This is the first verse of it. So verse 14, for by a single offering, see how he keeps hammering the one-time act of Jesus. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So he now recites again, Jeremiah 31 and verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now his concise comment on that, 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
If Jesus died and our sins are forgiven in the new covenant, there's no more need for repetitive sacrifices. It's that simple. Now we come to verse 19, the therefore brothers. And we'll, we'll hit on that in a minute and close there. But what I need to show you is chapter 10's repeated emphasis is how... Okay, so here, here's what's going on in the world. Is that all religion is fake. It's just a copy of God's reality. Some of them are better imitations than others. Jesus is the one who took us and said, let's get out of this fake stuff. Go through the veil into the reality of God himself. Jesus did that. Now chapter 10 answered for us, how did he do that? How did he do that when for years and years, offerings are made over and over? It says, well, Jesus offered a single sacrifice. Boom, sacrifices are done. The power of that, you have to see, is that the single sacrifice enabled humans to make progress with Jesus in this adventure. Because if sacrifices were continually necessary, we would make no progress out of the blue zone of religion and into the green zone of God's holy of holies itself. We would never make that progress because here's what repetitive sacrifices meant. It meant every time a human was willing to dare himself outside of the cathedral, one step, two step, oh no, shame, guilt, I'm a sinner, I have to go back and offer a sacrifice. Okay, let's go back one step, two step. I don't know where I am. I'm confused. I need a priest to help me understand something going back to the cathedral. Every two steps humans made, they had to take two more steps back with the sacrifice. But when Jesus' single sacrifice was offered once for all, humans could take two steps forward. And God said, take two more and take two more forward. And two more forward and two more forward because the sacrifice had already been offered. There is no more need to run back to the cathedral or to run back to your blue tent of religion. There's no more need for that. There's only need to take your steps in a positive direction following our hero in the call to adventure till we get deep, 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 deep into the endless eternal reality of Jesus. That's what we're being called to. And that's how Hebrews is showing us that this is possible. The two-step dance. We're either living tonight, taking two steps forward and then two steps back, which I would say the majority of Christianity in America looks like. It looks like nothing more than a glorified, fine-tuned version of religion. But then we have those few who are truly pressing on two steps forward, two steps forward, two steps forward. This is scary, but I know Jesus is my hero and he's going with me. Two steps forward, two steps forward. What do I do? He's my high priest. He's already made a sacrifice. Two steps forward, two steps forward. And they keep going, they keep going, they keep going, they keep going. And here's the call for us. Keep going, but don't forget to be like your hero. And visit the blue every now and then to encourage your other brothers and sisters to come into the green. So, verses 19 to 25 close with this threefold exhortation, encouragement. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that green, the holy of holies, God's eternal reality, by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. That's how the curtain was torn, by the tearing of his flesh. Remember on the cross when the veil was torn in the temple? And since we have a great 
priest over the house of God because of all this stuff. Because Jesus has pioneered the way for us. Let us, number one, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We can enter. Let us draw near. Let us go forward. Keep going. You can enter. There's no fear. So let us do it. He's encouraging us. Enter. Don't live in the blue zone anymore. There is so, you now know it's a copy of reality. Go into reality. Number two, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So hold it fast without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Remember that your hero went the distance. That's your hope. Hold fast to that hope. Hold fast to that. He is faithful who promised. He went the distance. He will continue to go the distance with you. So go the distance. He's not going to abandon you. You can hold fast to that. You will make it to the green zone if you hold fast. And then third, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Maybe some ditched for the synagogue or something. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see that. Stir one another up to good works. Meet together. Encourage one another. What's the point? Don't forget that once you've entered and you've endured to return to your brothers and sisters and bring them along with you. Encourage them all the more until Jesus returns. That's Jesus, our hero, part two. We're allowed to take two steps forward and don't have to take two steps back. So may the peace of Jesus go with you wherever he may send you this week. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors.